Hello everyone and welcome to this month's panel podcast entitled Inflated Expectations. I'm joined today, the 22nd of September, by Sheldon MacDonald, Nathan Sweeney, Mayank Markande, Jen Corsten, Alex Byrne and Asim Kadri. If you combine vast stimulus packages with huge liquidity injections, the result can be a spike in inflation. The US Federal Reserve seems to think so. The Fed recently introduced a new policy framework, which would allow inflation to run hot for several months, overshooting their targets, although without triggering an interest rate hike. In reality, though, there has been very little evidence of inflation in recent months, and forecasts for the next few years are still stubbornly below the Fed's 2% target. Today, we'll discuss the risk of inflation running out of control set against deflationary forces. And finally, we'll look at where to find value in an inflation environment. Sheldon, could you please set the framework for our discussion by outlining the significance of inflation, or indeed deflation, for equity and bond market valuations? Hi, Lorna. Thanks very much. Yes, indeed, inflation is an incredibly important topic, and that's because it permeates everything from equities to bonds and even through to commodities. So investors looking at these assets will be considering the prospects for inflation before considering the valuations of those areas. Let's start on the equity side. The first thing to note is that a reasonable amount of demand-driven inflation is a positive thing. For a start, it's much better than deflation, which is a massive problem for economies. And the reason why inflation is good, though, is that it sets up a virtuous cycle. So if you have good demand coming through in the economy, sellers can then charge more for the things they're selling or producing um, or the services they're offering. They enjoy greater profits. That means they can then invest further in their business or they can pay higher wages to attract staff. Those staff can then increase their own consumption and so on. And that leads to higher prices. And as I say, you get this virtuous cycle. And if this remains controlled, that's a very good environment for equities, good profits, increased sales, increased margins, etc. On the bond side, let's think about bonds. We call them fixed interest assets, fixed income assets, because they pay a fixed coupon. Now, higher inflation will devalue those future payments. So we need to be very wary as bond investors to take a, a view on what inflation is going to do. If inflation is going to be higher than expected, then the present value of those future payments that we're going to receive, as I say, would be devalued. Now, if we get excessive inflation in the economy, that's when the central banks need to start raising rates to try and keep a lid on inflation. We don't want to get runaway inflation. And so interest rate hikes can start spiraling if you get excessive inflation and higher interest rates, as I said, become a drag on the economy. And also, once you start raising rates, you need as an investor to start considering again the present value of those future payments that you're going to get. Now, the same as with bonds, equity valuations should also just be present value of an equity should also just reflect the present value of the future dividend payments that you're going to receive from it. And if you're discounting those future payments at a higher rate, the present value goes down. So in a scenario where higher inflation leads to higher interest rates, that's bad for equity valuations. So there's really a, a sweet spot that central banks will really want to hit where you get a reasonable amount of inflation where it doesn't run away and start leading to excessive rate hikes. Um, I did mention commodities. Um, it does impact commodities as well. Often gold, for instance, is seen as an inflationary hedge. And so, you know, you do get commodity prices also reacting to changes in inflation. So across the economy, across the investment horizon, the investment universe, it's an incredibly important topic. And that's why we're focusing on it today.
Yes, thank you, Sheldon. That was very useful. Nathan, perhaps the most eye-watering valuations can be found in the US equity markets at the moment. I'm thinking particularly about some of the NASDAQ constituents. How have these valuations become so extended? Hi, Lorna. So I think it's pretty simple, really. So if you think about the US, it's awash with global leading companies. And, you know, a lot of these companies are expected to benefit from the structural move to everything online. So all you have to do is take a look at the sectors in the US. You've got a big tech sector, you've got consumer services, you've got consumer discretionary, and everybody knows these companies, Google, Microsoft, Nike, and, you know, they dominate at a global level. So it's easy to see why they warrant a higher valuation to say some other regions like Europe as an example. But back to your question, you know, the question is, have these valuations run too far, particularly in the short term? And I think the answer to that is actually yes, they have. And specifically within the FANG stocks. So what you've seen recently is some very aggressive price movements in the FANG stocks to the upside. So doing really well in August. And some of this is linked to aggressive aggressive positioning by retail investors in these FANG stocks. But just to give you a sense of valuations for, say, the US as an example. So if we look at the US and if we look at price to earnings, we can see that the US is trading on about 22 times forward earnings. Now, if you take out the FANG stocks, the market is trading on 20 times. You know, that doesn't sound like much, but actually when you look at the valuation of these FANG stocks, some of them are quite lofty. So to give you an example, say Amazon is trading on a PE of 71.9 times, and Netflix 57 times, Google 27, Facebook 26. So far and above the average stock within the index. And, you know, that's why you're seeing a bit of profit taking and a bit of volatility in FANGs. And I expect to see that continue as the market starts to look at other areas which are a bit cheaper following the COVID impact that we've seen over the last few months. Yes, lofty valuations there, as you say. But if the Fed now appears to have raised the alarm on inflation, is that simply a precautionary measure from them? So I'm not sure that they've actually raised the alarm on inflation. So what they're doing here with this inflation averaging, so instead of targeting 2% as a kind of a firm number, they're saying we're going to target an average of 2% because what they expect is that inflation at the moment is running very cool. And as the economic activity picks back up and you know people get employed, you're going to see inflation start to pick up. And basically what they're saying is if inflation runs above 2% for a period, it doesn't necessarily mean rate rises, where historically, if you got to that figure, it was kind of a trigger point for rate rises. But I'm less concerned about inflation. And the reason I'm less concerned about inflation is because we all know how difficult it's been for central banks to create inflation. So all you have to do is look back to the great financial crisis. So 2007, 2008, when markets sold off aggressively, the Fed cut interest rates in 2009. So we didn't see interest rates rise for seven years after that rate cut. And this was after quite aggressive intervention by central banks to try and create inflation. So it's been very difficult for central banks globally to create inflation over the last decade. So I don't see that anything has changed that will change that framework for inflation going forward. Now, I do agree that we should get some short-term spikes because we're coming off a low base. But at the moment, we still have economic growth is subdued. 
we still have the potential for you know second waves to dampen economic growth so for me inflation is definitely not a concern at this point and in the meantime we have this guaranteed platform of lower for longer interest rates from the fed if we could turn now to europe alex very recent data there suggest a more deflationary backdrop. How come these stimulus packages are not working as you might expect here? Thanks, Lorna. The most recent headline numbers in European inflation are negative. First time that that's the case since 2016 when we were going into a recession. So there's some link there with the perception of recession, which is clearly happening at the moment. In honesty, if you look through the numbers in the inflation, there's a large part of that decrease can be attributed to where the virus has restricted activity or restricted the economy. It's almost entirely attributable to that. Fact. So things like airfares, hotel costs, sports and entertainment, all those kind of things have been massively impacted by the virus and in so doing have reduced the amount of inflation that's happened. So the logical assumption would be that if we do get some kind of vaccine or if we're able to live with the virus more and it, it becomes an normal part of life, then these elements of inflation will rebound pretty sharply. So the hope is that this is a, a more short-term thing and it's not in this kind of deflationary environment. Your question specifically about why the stimulus has not been enough to turn this around. I think it's just people's mentality, people's behaviour. I certainly know I haven't been out and bought as many things as I would have done or went out for lunch as much as I would have done. So it's helpful to a degree in supporting these numbers, but there's only so much you can do to change people's perceptions and to build confidence when people don't want to be going out of their homes. Yeah, Lorna, I entirely agree with what Alex has said there. So, you know, he's right in that when things normalize, you're likely to see a spike in short term inflation. But the question really is, where do we go from there? You know, once you get that initial spike, are we going to move to a platform where we kind of have higher inflation for a persistent period of time? And interestingly, if you look at the Federal Reserve in the US, they did change their forecast for interest rates. And, you know, when they expect to raise interest rates in the US and looking at the current current guidance. It looks like they don't expect to raise interest rates until into 2024, which is a long way out, which tells you kind of their view on inflation expectations at this point in time. Yes, it does. But confidence very much key there, as you mentioned, Alex. Sheldon, I think you were going to make a point there. Yes, I think we've been speaking now in the last few minutes about you know, the prospects for inflation as we come out of lockdown, as we rebound from the difficult period. But right now, as we speak, we're facing, certainly here in the UK, we're facing the spectre of a second lockdown. So the potential then for, for those rebound effects not to be felt, which obviously raises the risk of some deflation. So I was going to put it to Alex. Alex, you also cover Japan, which is a, a region and economy which has suffered with deflation for many years. They speak about the lost decade. What was the experience in Japan and how were they able to deal with it in the last decade? How did central banks react and, and how did markets react? Thanks, Sheldon. Yeah, um, the link in Japan is quite an interesting one because they've had deflation there for such a long period of time during the kind of the lost decade, which you mentioned. It's fed into the consumer habits and almost the cultural elements of it. So there's this massive bias now to what's the point in buying something when you know next month it's going to be cheaper, but more so to hoard cash. So that's the same for consumers, but also for companies as well, which is why the investment environment in Japan has been poor for such a long period of time. They've managed to contain it to a degree, largely because of what Abenomics is doing by deploying massive stimulus. So prior to the effect that the virus has had on inflation, the inflation was stable, but remained very, very low. Similar to what other several banks have done, they just continually pushed out the 2% inflation target for year upon year. But they had been able to maintain it at a low level, fairly stably until the virus impact on it again, as it has in Europe. 
Yes, and of course, Japan offers an object lesson on the effects of deflation on asset prices. That was useful, Alex. Thank you. Let's turn to China, the only major economy which is forecast to have positive growth this year. The People's Bank of China acted quickly in boosting liquidity on the lockdown, and the result has been a V-shaped recovery. Asim, was their response loose enough to trigger inflation as well there? Hi, Lorna. Yeah, so inflation has been somewhat volatile this year in China. So initially, at the start of the year, when the pandemic was taking hold, inflation spiked quite sharply, and that was on the back of supply disruptions, along with the significant policy support we saw from the government and central bank, as you alluded to. So initially, inflation in China rose to over 5%, which was the highest level since 2011. However, since then, inflation has, on the whole, trended downwards, as the recovery in consumer spending has lagged normalization in the supply side of the economy, such that the headline inflation figure now stands at 2.4%, which is broadly in line with the average level we've seen over the last 10 or so years. Going forward, inflation is expected to continue to moderate due to supply, i.e. production, still remaining strong relative to demand. And this lack of inflation pressure in the near term shouldn't mean that further policy support remains forthcoming in China. Was there an impact on valuations there? Yeah, so valuations are undoubtedly stretched in China. So the 12-month forward price to earnings multiple for the Equity Market Index is currently at 14.8 times, which is close to an all-time high and well above uh, the long-term average of 11.6 times. This headline figure does somewhat mask the significant valuation disparities that lie underneath. It's a similar story to the US, really, in the sense that the index is now heavily concentrated in mega-cap internet and technology companies. The valuation premium of growth sectors like internet and also healthcare versus value sectors like energy is currently at an all-time high, illustrating the narrowness of the market rally that we've seen this year. I think this does suggest the potential for these growth areas of the market to continue to drive broader index returns as they have done so far this year has somewhat diminished in the short term and we may need to see a rotation into some of the more undervalued areas of the market if there's going to be further strong index returns from China over the near term. And that can happen if there's hopes for a pickup in growth. Jen, we've got used to the UK presenting a special case given the ongoing trial of Brexit. Is there a clear inflation risk here? Well, we did see cost push inflation after the EU referendum. The drop in sterling was unusually large from an advanced economy, but the pound has remained around these low levels since, give or take a rally here and there. So it is hard to see another plunge in sterling of the same magnitude. But yes, a no-deal Brexit could see renewed weakness in the pound and a temporary spike in inflation due to the cost and inevitable delay of imports. Is this then your base case? No, I'm expecting inflation to remain fairly subdued. At the moment, with lockdowns increasing and the inevitable spike in unemployment, it's hard to see it breaching the 2% target in the next few years. So where do you see value in the UK market now? Well, as Sheldon alluded to, typically commodities are quite resilient against a bit of pickup in inflation. The miners have already rallied on the China recovery and better capital discipline, but oil and gas remains very unloved. It's not just about the weak oil price, but also the mammoth task of transition to greener companies. And then also the banks, so long as inflation doesn't run too high, eroding asset bases. There is some uncertainty about the extent of bad debt coming through from the crisis, but banks are well capitalised this time around, especially as they've been asked not to pay a dividend this year, and higher yields will help their lending models. Indeed. Mayank, Sheldon alluded there to gold as a traditional hedge against rising inflation, but an obvious beneficiary would be inflation-linked bonds. Could you give your current view on this asset class, please? Inflation-linked bonds, the way they work is they offer a real yield and then a inflation component, which is linked to the realised 
level of inflation. What we've seen so far on a year-to-date basis is that inflation-linked bonds have actually outperformed nominals. And they've done so for two reasons. The first reason is that they're typically longer duration asset classes. So when interest rates go down, as they have in 2020, these assets benefit the most. And the second reason is that in the height of COVID, when inflation expectations became so low, bordering towards deflation, and then subsequent to that, both the monetary and fiscal stimulus in the April-May period, inflation expectations renormalized to normal levels. Uh, That helped inflation-linked bonds do well, especially against nominal bonds. Now, going forward, it really depends on how the inflation picture pans out. And it's not necessarily inflation in the context of, are we going to have a huge spike? It's more about what is priced in. So, you know, what the market expects. And uh, we could gauge this through, let's say, the five-year, five-year futures curve in the US, for example is pointing to an inflation of roughly, you know, 1.6, 1.7% over a 10-year horizon. And we know from the Fed, they have committed to do ultra-loose monetary policy until that time where inflation overshoots 2% and continues to overshoot over a period of time. So arguably, if things improve, especially if there is a vaccine solution, we could see inflation expectations rise again and linkers will do well. But that really is the binary outcome. Okay, thanks for that. And on a tactical asset allocation basis, where would you see value in these markets at the moment? Overall, if you look at global equities, they've obviously bounced back very strongly since the lows on the 23rd of March, and they had an exceptional August. However, we've seen some pullback in September, but most markets, especially in the US, the US equities driven by US tech, uh, has still recorded very strong returns. We've also seen value sectors, especially over the last few weeks, enjoying some outperformance at the expense of extended growth and quality sectors, which have done so well on a year-to-day basis. So optically, I would say there is value in value sectors, so value sectors like materials, energy, and industrials. Similarly, there is value in regions outside the US, so Europe and UK, as well as some parts of emerging markets. At the same time, I would say that we're entering a period in Q4 where we will experience higher volatility only if considering just the geopolitics with US election and Brexit. And overall, I would say outside of certain regions and sectors, overall valuations within equities are slightly elevated. So there is a slightly higher probability of pullback. So I would say the base case is from a tactical asset allocation perspective is to be neutral in equities, whilst there are some positives in terms of you know, positive macro and some positive news on the vaccine front. There are a number of risk factors that could derail that recovery. Within fixed income, we remain neutral on duration. Duration has been a very effective hedge, as we saw in the first quarter uh, of this year. And it's important to remember that even though yields are very low across all developed markets, the level of yields are not necessarily a good indicator of uh, of realized returns. So in a risk-off environment, government bonds can continue to act as a positive hedge against equity risk. Uh, Finally, in credit, credit spreads have compressed quite considerably, especially investment grade. So we remain neutral to selectively underweight investment grade, but we do like the extra carry and yield that we're getting from high yield and emerging market debt, which still remain attractive on a risk-adjusted and a default-adjusted basis. So we are moderately overweight there. 
Okay, and but just to sort of come backwards to the original premise that we were thinking of, where would you look for value if inflation did spike upwards? If inflation did spike upwards, it really depends on what the cause is. So if it's a price-driven or a cost-push inflation without growth, or as it's known as stagflation, then it's typically bad for equities and bonds, uh, but it's not bad for all equities. So certain sectors within equities, such as healthcare, energy, or utilities, could actually do quite well. Similarly, I would expect gold and commodities to do quite well in this kind of environment. On the other hand, if the inflation spike is due to growth renormalization, then equities will actually do quite well. And also value stocks with cyclical earnings are the ones that are likely to benefit the most. In terms of regions, I would expect ex-US equities, so you know UK emerging markets and European equities to do better than US as they have more of a value bias. And then real assets such as property and broad commodities as demand outstrips supply will also continue to do well in this kind of environment. That's very interesting. Sheldon, could I come back to you then to summarise our discussion today? So my take on the discussion that we've heard so far is that, if anything, I think inflation is not really a problem. While there's different nuances around the world, at the moment, what we're seeing is that we're not expecting runaway inflation to rear its head anywhere, really. In fact, if anything, deflationary risks do seem to be present. Authorities clearly keen to avoid deflation, and that's why they're signalling their willingness to continue the support measures that are already in place, and in fact, even to boost them further. That's helping to support the confidence of investors and really keeping markets supported at the moment. Of course, if we do see a COVID vaccine and the rebound continues, then of course, there is the potential risk of inflation, given the massive liquidity boost that we've had in the market so far, and the, the stimulus measures that we've seen. But for the moment, I think that's a problem for another day. And authorities, as we've heard specifically from the Fed, they are prepared to let inflation run hot for a while. But I think at the moment, we really need to prepare ourselves for lower for longer. We've heard that for some time. And I think going forward, it's going to be even lower for even longer. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.